Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. There's now less than a week before this year's state budget is due, and usually by this time, we sort of know what's on the table and what's not. But this year, it's a little fuzzy. And that's because, unlike past years, we're not really getting regular updates from lawmakers or the governor. Part of that is the pandemic. People aren't really walking the halls like they used to. And to their credit, leaders from the state legislature took questions from reporters this week on where things stand. But we've also seen this pattern from the Hochul administration of declining to answer questions on major policy issues in public and from the press. This is what she said to reporters this week when they tried to ask her about the state budget. I've committed to my partners in the legislature that I will not be negotiating the budget in public. So we have 10 more days to go. We're working on it, and that's what I want to say on that. And since then, Hochul's been negotiating the budget with lawmakers behind closed doors, which isn't all that unusual for Planet Albany. But she's hit a snag with a surprise 10-point public safety plan that she now wants in a final budget deal by the end of the month. And she's been trying to build support for that plan in the last few days. But it looks like that might not be enough to convince lawmakers. Daryl Camp reports. There's less than a week left before the state budget is due, but the future of one hot-button issue could not be less clear. That issue is the state's bail reform law. Bail reform went into effect back in 2020 and eliminated cash bail for most nonviolent criminal offenses. Since then, crime has gone up in New York and across the country. Opponents of bail reform have attempted to link those two things, saying the law is responsible for higher rates of crime. Supporters say that's not true, and there has been no nonpartisan statistical analysis that ties the rise in crime to bail reform. But the conversation around bail reform changed last week after an internal crime plan from the Hochul administration was leaked to the press. The plan would give judges more power to hold someone before trial for certain felonies and gun crimes. Hochul confirmed that plan to reporters this week, but she said she would not speak about it with the press. I know this is very interesting to the media, but I do know that New Yorkers are most interested in results, and I know how to get results. Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin is taking the lead on negotiating public safety with lawmakers and had a meeting to talk it out with them this week. While he initially declined to answer questions from the media on bail reform, he later apologized and told reporters that conversations on the plan were still ongoing. I was a part of bail reform one and two. We believe it's a good thing. We also believe, given what we're seeing, that there are some amendments that should be a part of that. But remember, this is a, this is a public safety plan that is broader than bail reform. We're talking about mental health. We're talking about issues of, work, of, of pretrial services. The plan is relevant for budget talks because parts of it include funding for things like pretrial services. But the non-monetary items in the plan have prompted a strong reaction from lawmakers. Among them is Assemblymember Latrice Walker, one of the architects of the original plan that passed back in 2019. She said there's been a wave of misinformation about bail reform since it was enacted and that lawmakers shouldn't play into that. But every time we look at the media and the news, we are seeing cases that are bail eligible, not receiving bail because judicial advocacy is happening at its worst. Yeah. The judges do not want to see bail reform work just like the PBA, just like the Sergeant Benevolent Association, just like the police commissioners. Walker is also against judicial discretion for bail, which is something many Republicans have called for in recent months. But not all Democrats are of like mind when it comes to possible changes. 
Long Island Senator Todd Kaminsky, who ran for Nassau County District Attorney last year, says there should be room to refine existing laws. So people certainly use it as a weapon and make false facts about it, but that doesn't mean that there aren't some important things that need to be addressed. I believe that no one should be having a hard line. And while Democrats are split on the issue, Republicans have been largely united against the current bail reform laws. They've called for judges to have more discretion to hold someone before trial based on their perceived threat to public safety. And it is playing into this year's elections as well. Congressman Lee Zeldin, who's the Republican nominee for governor, says that Hochul is not taking the issue seriously. Yesterday, the Speaker of the Assembly and the Senate Majority Leader made it clear that they don't have the will to do the right thing here. Uh, so strategically, uh, she has really left all New Yorkers in a bind. The leaders in both houses do seem open to negotiations, but they are casting doubts on an agreement being reached during budget talks with the deadline so close. Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty. Members are willing to talk about all of these issues, but I just don't know if two and a half days is enough time. Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins says that opponents of bail reform have mischaracterized its impact on public safety, but did tell reporters this week that if they find ways to improve the law, they would be open to that. But in the intervening days, I will continue and my conference will continue to do what we think is right for the people of New York State. And I believe that if we continue to do that, we will transcend uh, politics, especially politics of, of, of lies. With just days left before the state budget is due, it won't be long before we know what's in that plan. But will that plan include changes to bail reform? Well, we won't know until then. For New York Now, I'm Daryl Camp in Albany. And there's a lot more to work out in the week ahead. Let's get into it with this week's panel. Karen DeWitt is from New York State Public Radio, and Zach Williams is from City and State. Thank you both for being here. Sure thing. Thank you. Really interesting week in terms of transparency in government. This is how we led the show this week. In Daryl's package that we just saw, we saw a little clip of Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin <laughs> running away from the press. After a press conference he was in, uh, the press tried to ask him questions. Yep. Valiantly by on Zach's behalf and, and <laughs> others, as you can hear in that clip, trying to get him to answer. Yeah, right? exactly. It's usually not that interesting in state politics. You know, you're not usually chasing people down corridors, especially Brian Benjamin, who kind of has a reputation as one of the more approachable members of yeah. the state Senate. And he's representing an administration that has put transparency at, at the top of the list in terms of what they want New Yorkers to identify them with. And yet the governor herself won't speak in public about her bail plan and she kind of left her lieutenant governor out to dry. It didn't seem like he knew what to do. Yeah, mm. it, it, I agree. And I wonder, the thing about it is I think about this on my nights and weekends, <laughs> <laughs> about how the press strategy is coming from the local administration as to whether, is this deliberate in the sense of like they're telling themselves, let's not be very open with the press? Or is it just they're, they're you know, building the airplane while they fly it? What do you think, Karen? I, I think it's her first big misstep that she's had, and I really think that she completely lost the messaging on bail <laughs> reform changes, and now she's getting it from both sides. Because at first she was acting like she was gonna take the lead of the legislature, wait for more data before deciding, and then all of a sudden there's this 10-point memo that's leaked to the New York Post that had makes significant, I mean, it doesn't completely overhaul bail reform, but it makes some pretty significant changes. It and does. then she waits six days before she talks about it in public. And I know Zach and I were at a press conference way back on Monday where we tried 
to get her to talk about it and said, you know, if this is your position, why don't you just make a public presentation? And she was saying, I don't want to negotiate in public. And then she releases an op-ed in the Daily News defending her It drives her me crazy. It drives, like, I, I could scream into this microphone. That's on my lapel right now. It drove me crazy just to see that. Well, I don't know. I, I actually take the other tactic. I find it kind of interesting because she's been doing so well. She's almost been Teflon. There's, like, there's been little yeah. things. Certainly, I've reported on things that other politicians might blow up into something big and she kind of goes on nobody pays any attention to it but, and, and but, but I was just gonna say that this is like more serious that she has to do budget negotiations with the legislature right. up to now it's been you know public appearances on her terms her state of the state message her budget and this is really where you have to do the nuts and bolts of governing right. and that's where it's showing that they haven't done this before. And like you said, they are building the plane while they're flying it. And <laughs> it's, now it's showing. Yeah, yeah and I, um, I, I lost the great thought that I had while you were talking, Karen. Oh, but, but I would. <laughs> no worries. I have that effect um, on but, but I would add that, you know, I think the, the governor, to give her credit, found the thought, is she does have a knack for really finding issues that resonate with New Yorkers yes. beyond the people that are here in Albany. To-go cocktails, great example. She's making mm. a big push down the line, down the, the final stretch of budget negotiations. She knows that New Yorkers, maybe even some at this table, like a to-go cocktail and you know some 1920s, 30s, 40s laws shouldn't stand in the way. And that might help break her through. Unfortunately, with bail, it's not one of those issues that is just automatically popular, yeah. that you have kind of, and you have powerful interests that are pushing against her. Mm -hmm. She, I, I agree with you, this is kind of the big, first big misstep. She's had so many successful things, helping, you know, responding to the hurricanes, mm -hmm. rent, mm -hmm. things have gone well, and now she's really being challenged at the, at, at the, the hardest time of the year, one week before the budget deadline, and it just doesn't seem like her administration was quite ready yeah. for what they were putting out there. Well, the legislative leaders, they don't want to do it. Right. It doesn't seem like she's convinced them yet. Like, they really champion the bail reform changes, mm -hmm. and they really believe in them because there is evidence that shows black and brown New Yorkers have been adversely impacted by bail. While whites can usually make bail and get out, black and brown New Yorkers are mm -hmm. stuck in jail. So they have legitimate reasons for this and they don't want to take a step back. So, and actually, you know, I was thinking about that this, this morning. They've done a budget way more times than <laughs> Governor Hochul has. Yeah. And especially, you know, last year, uh, former Governor Andrew Cuomo, he wasn't as involved with the budget process as he liked to have people to believe because his there was scandals, some other stuff going on. Yeah, his scandals yeah. were beginning then. And so the legislature is getting better at driving this process. And it's just gonna be really interesting in the next few days. To see well, that's happens. a really interesting point. You know, we've seen in recent years, um, ever since the Democrats took over the state Senate, that there's been kind of a push to assert the power of the legislature, which on paper should be more powerful than the governor. Mm -hmm. You know, they can override vetoes after all, but you know, history shows that that never really happens. And you know, I agree that that the governor, um, you know, months ago we were wondering, oh, she's gonna give away the store because of her election. Mm -hmm. She right. wants their support, but now she's not really facing as competitive of primary. Some might disagree with that, of course. Mm -hmm. But we do have to ask, what do the lawmakers want and what is she willing to get give in order to save face on bail or maybe even get all of her changes? There are a few things in that plan that could be a basis for compromise, more money for discovery reform, um, more money for mental health, stuff right. like that. But I'm really wondering, and who I'm really watching are the state lawmakers, because every time they highlight something they want, I wonder maybe they'll get this in exchange for a little leeway with the governor. Exactly, that's right. the game in Albany. It's it's I'll give you this and you give me that, and <laughs> mm -hmm. we'll have to see in the final days of the budget what happens. We have about two minutes left. 
I want to go over the budget, not really over the budget, but I want to talk about <laughs> it in general, uh, about what we know and what we don't know. So, so Karen, what are you looking at in the next few days in terms of what we know is going to be in the budget, what we don't know is going to be well, in the budget? Well, I'm also looking to see how much more the legislature will get away with spending than the governor has proposed. Because if you count it up, they want to spend about $6 billion more. And Hochul had a budget that was balanced for five years. So if yeah. there's more spending in that, we're going to end up with future deficits. I guess I'm looking for, is there going to be a gas tax holiday? I think they're going to have to do something about that. Yeah. Um, ethics reform, it seems like that is not happening. Right, you know, like this is the perennial issue. <laughs> yeah, right. and like, I, I push it a lot in terms of when we talk to lawmakers because it just seems like in one part of the year, there's always this outrage of like ethics, 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 and then we get down to the wire and everybody's like, ethics, what are you talking about? We don't have anything to do with that. So I think you're right. That's something to watch, maybe not during budget, maybe after budget. Uh, Zach, what do we know in terms of the next few days? Whew. Well, you know, bail reform is on the line. We really don't know what's going to happen there. Mayoral control seems to be out of the budget. Oh, right. So New York City Mayor Eric Adams is going to have to fight to keep control of the city schools afterwards, maybe get a few years extension. Um, but I think ethics reform is really something that's getting lost in the mix. You know, this is a governor who came to power after a governor resigned because of ethics scandals. Yeah. You know, she's made transparency a big thing. She promised to change the ways of Albany. How many governors have we seen say that? Right. And now she seems up. like the latest one to kind of give up on the five yard line, um, especially when she's spending her political capital on bail and not ethics reform. Speaking yeah. of five yard line, Buffalo Bills Stadium. Is, oh, that, no. going, is that going to be in? The NFL nice owners segment, right? are approving the deal. Yeah. It, it yeah. seems is, like there could be a last minute thing. Yeah, is that going to be in? And, and what is that going to look like? How much is New York State going to have to pay for this stadium? especially when you have a governor who's just an unashamed Buffalo Bills fan. It puts her in an awkward position. Right. I guess, like, on the plus side of looking at that, well, there's two sides, right? If you give a billion dollars for the Buffalo Bills stadium, great for Buffalo. If you don't do that, maybe that billion dollars could be spent elsewhere. So I think that's the big question in terms of that right now. But we are out of time. we got to leave it there. Karen DeWitt <laughs> from New York State Public Radio. Zach Williams from City and State. Thank you both so much. Thank You're you. are welcome. All right. Staying now with the state budget. Winemakers in Albany are moving closer to a deal on the so-called Clean Slate Act. That's a bill that would allow someone's criminal record to be sealed after they've served their sentence and waited a few years without another conviction. That idea has support from Governor Kathy Hochul and Democrats in the state Senate who want it in this year's budget. And as we told you, that's due in less than a week. So the next few days could be make or break, at least for the time being. For more on that, I spoke with the bill's sponsor, Senator Zellner Myrie and Garrett Smith a supporter of the bill from the Center for Community Alternatives, a criminal justice advocacy group. Senator Myrie and Garrett, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Always no good problem, to be with man. you. It's good to be here. So this is a bill that we've actually covered a lot on the show. It's the Clean Slate Bill. It would essentially let people wipe their convictions after a certain waiting period after their sentence. So if you served a misdemeanor, then you wait three years and you can have that conviction cleared. If you serve a felony, you have to wait seven years and then have that conviction cleared. First question for you, Senator Myrie. I'm just wondering, are any crimes excluded from that list? Uh, so what Clean Slate does uh, this is a anti-poverty bill. Uh, this is a housing bill, an education bill, an economics bill. Uh, it's about giving people another chance uh, to be productive members of their society, um, of their communities. Uh, and it does so by the automatic ceiling, as you described, uh, for certain convictions. Uh, there uh, are certain limitations to this. Uh, the courts, law enforcement still have access to those records. 
Uh, and if you are registered uh, on the sex offense registry in the state of New York, uh, automatic sealing would not apply to you. But the underlying principle of this uh, is that if you have been convicted, if you have served your time, uh, you deserve a second chance. You deserve the opportunity uh, to get affordable housing, to get your education, and to get a job so that you can uplift yourself and uplift those around you. So Garrett, you have a personal experience with this. You had a felony conviction that was later overturned because of your mental health. But I'm wondering if you can explain how this affects people's lives personally and individually. If I have a conviction on my record, what kind of obstacles does that present to me as a person in society? Well, that's a really great question. And it's, it's funny that you mention it in that way, framing it in, in, in that manner. If I had a my conviction history in front when I would meet someone or when they would meet me, that's being a part of their first impression of me, I wouldn't have made it as far as I felt, I personally feel like I wouldn't have made it as far as I currently am uh, given that circumstance. So I look at people that uh, came along this journey with me and, or, you know, they have the various things that's going on in their life, but then they can't, you know, go to this type of school that they want to go to, uh, even though they have the merits for it, or they can't get that same type of job, you know, they, even though they have the merits for it, it's still being held against them. And that impacts their overall quality of life when you think about them projecting forward. So, you know, when you remove the systemic barriers or those man-made type of barriers uh, uh, from a person's life where they could just really be able to walk that path, well, whatever cars they may have been dealt, right? I'm not saying like we need to like start handing out meal tickets to people. I'm saying well, whatever cars that person is, is dealt with, let that be enough with their life. Everything else, should we shouldn't be having like the, the systemic barriers in place on top of the life barriers that people are already dealing with. So I think so, please definitely do that. When we're talking about systemic barriers, we're talking about things like if somebody's going to apply for a full-time job, they may have a background check and a prospective employer may see a previous conviction and say, I don't want that person working here. The same thing uh, in certain types of housing situations. So I, I'm wondering, because we have clean slate, the bill, and, and as I explained, the, there would be a waiting period between the end of a sentence and when a conviction is sealed. And I wanna ask this to you first, Garrett. So in that interim time, which I think we can all agree is probably the most important for somebody when they're trying to reintegrate back into society, what do you think the state should be doing to support those people during that gap? My thing is this, when a person is coming out, right, a person getting into the community, what I look at Clean Slate doing as, a, as when, when you think about an over, over, overarching uh, understanding of it is that Clean Slate is instilling hope for that person. It's instilling them with that drive for resilience. You might have, whatever your rock bottom may be, whatever your baggage may be, you are at that rock bottom, but if you have some sense of hope or some sense of light at the end of the tunnel, you will work towards whatever it may be. But I don't feel like the state should be like, I'm not, I'm not here to tell the state what to do. Basically, I, I feel like everybody should be able to, to live their own life and walk their own path, um, whether they need the state or not. You see what I'm saying? Well, Senator Myrie, what do you think the state could do in that gap? If we are going to head to a clean slate bill that does have that gap, three years for misdemeanors and then seven years for felonies, what can those people do in the interim to, to really move forward in life? It's still obviously an obstacle during that time if you're going for a full-time job and somebody sees that you have a conviction. So, and for three years, that can be quite a long time even for just a misdemeanor, you know? So what do you think the state should do? 
Yeah, it's a it's a tough thing to answer. I think Garrett um, uh, eloquently expressed uh, why there's some reservation about heavy state involvement. Uh, but I think at the very least, the state could be educating people on what is to come, because as the bill outlines, uh, one conviction, then the clock starts over. Uh, and so this is a public safety bill in that it incentivizes individuals um, to really focus on getting to that automatic ceiling point. And we have seen with many of the reforms that we make that the biggest obstacle is often the implementation. Uh, it's often that people just don't know that this is available to them. Even our current ceiling statute, part of the reason that we want to pass Clean Slate and make it automatic uh, is that people don't know that they can seal their records right now. And in fact, half of a percentage point of those who are eligible make use of the current ceiling structure. And so I think at the very least, the state could be educating, sending out material, informing people that this is something that you could uh, be eligible for if you remain conviction free. You know, is this year different? We saw at the end of last year's legislative session that both the Assembly and the Senate seemed to come pretty close to passing Clean Slate. Do you think that you can get it this year? Have things changed to the Senate? I am, I am cautiously optimistic that this year is different. What we have seen with Clean Slate is a coalition unlike what we've seen for any other campaign on these types of efforts. We have the private industry that has come out in pretty strong support of this. We have the faith uh, community that has come out in strong support of this. We have major labor organizations that have come out in support of this and most importantly impacted individuals who have said we need this and we need this now. That is an unprecedented coalition of individuals that I think makes this different than what we have seen in the past. Uh, my hope is that we will get the legislative version of the clean slate into the budget. There are budget implications for the implementation of clean slate uh, and I'm hopeful. Uh, I think that we are at a time where we're having a very fevered conversation about public safety. Uh, and I believe that this is a public safety bill uh, that we can utilize to help advance public safety in our communities. Well, let me shoot that last question to Garrett about that. So I, I can see the opposition to the bill being people that are concerned about what is happening right now, actually, in terms of somebody goes to apply for a job and now maybe a potential employer isn't able to see that somebody was convicted of something that might be relevant to that job in their view. How do you respond to that? How do you get people to sign on to your side of this bill? Well, let me say it first like this. When when people are thinking about clean slate, they're thinking about it in like in in most situations that I'm I'm been seeing with opposition, people are thinking about clean slate in a criminal legal sense. We're talking about people that's already working and living in the community. We're talking, the majority of people we're talking about are like their conviction history is like ten plus years ago. It's like a long time ago, but they're like working like four or five jobs, having to work a lot of part time jobs, all those type of things to try to make it because of the cost of living. These are people that's already doing things in the community. These are people that's like already paying taxes, already, you know, paying into their community, you know, whether it's through just working and then, you know, feeding into the economy. There's these are people that's already voting. These are people that already have family members already doing stuff in the community. So it's just a matter of a moral opinion right now in the eye of the public and not a technical aspect with safeguards. It's really does New York want this in a moral sense? you know, and then it can really happen because that's where it's at right now. Um, it's a public safety bill, it's a civil rights bill, it's a human rights bill, 
for all those reasons that that uh, Z and I both outlined throughout this call. All right, and it's a bill that we have been watching and we will continue to watch, especially as the state budget comes together. Garrett Smith from the Center for Community Alternatives and State Senator Zellner Myrie, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks Appreciate it, man. Now, not everyone's on board with the Clean Slate Bill. Opponents say they're concerned about the possibility of someone applying for a job in a field that might be related to what they were convicted of. That doesn't mean there would be an issue, but opponents say that business owners should be able to know about that past conviction. Senator Rob Ort is one of those opponents. When we know crime is the most significant issue facing New Yorkers across the board, their answer in the budget is to wipe away and hide from employers certain crimes, some of which might be really significant, and that you as a customer or a client or even another employee just might want to know. So we'll see if Clean Slate ends up in the budget next week or not. But moving on now to On the Bill, a new segment we're doing on occasion to tell you about a bill in Albany that you might not hear about otherwise. This week, we're talking about the All Electric Buildings Act. It's a bill that would require any new buildings built after 2023 to be powered totally by electricity. So those buildings would not be allowed to use fossil fuels, like natural gas and oil, as their primary power source. They would be allowed to have some fossil fuel reserves in case of an emergency. And remember, this is only new construction. So if you already own a home or want to buy a home that's already built, it wouldn't impact you. It's sponsored by Assemblymember Emily Gallagher and Senator Brian Kavanaugh, both from New York City. And Kavanaugh said this is feasible, even for rural areas of the state, if New York gives its energy grid an upgrade. We need to make sure that we make the grid increasingly reliable. We already have people relying on electricity for essential services. So it's not, it's not that this bill is creating problems with reliability. We, so that means, that means expanding our capacity for uh, green generation and transmission. Now, supporters want to see the bill in this year's budget, which again is due next week. But they're also planning to push for it after the budget if it's not included. So we'll see where it goes. In the meantime, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.